This episode is sponsored by Winter Victor Studio. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Hello. It is very springy here. It is very springy here. It's sunny out today. Got to get on my bike. It's going to be really warm this weekend. Very excited. Yes. So this has led to... Um several accidents on my part everyone was so sweet on the facebook page saying oh we're so glad you're back from beijing safely who knew that getting me home and spring cleanings you know revamping of things has caused so many injuries so so far i have smacked my face with a car door i have hammered my own thumb and i have dropped a table on my foot do you need to volunteer to help you Protect Apparently, I need a shoey Ron Ron suit to wear <laughs> to protect me from myself, or maybe even the Bing Dwen Dwen because he fell over like a weeble wobble and would just balance. I need a whole team <laughs> to protect me from myself, clearly. <laughs> I need a team to protect me from you because I just told you about a, a fantastic new iteration of a sport <laughs> and you wanted to hurt me for even mentioning it. And I want to, I want to say this. Threatened to punch you, and I and I do apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay. I understand because I would have wanted to punch me too, because the and this doesn't really fit anywhere except for the fact that we talk about weightlifting a fair amount. But the International Weightlifting Federation has introduced a new format called street weightlifting. <laughs> it's just like the street trend. Get on it. Okay, wait. We can't mention weightlifting. The, the weightlifting theme song? It's the weightlifting theme song. <laughs> Here, just another way that you can dope. Get your drugs on the street. Ooh, ouch, ouch. But basically, they're going to have, uh, apparently, teams of two people from the same country will be lift, weightlifting outdoors to showcase that weightlifting can be done in an urban setting, even though there's plenty of gyms in cities. And... <laughs> I don't get it. I really don't get it. This to me is like, oh, urban urban sport or street sports have jumped the shark. Maybe they'll weightlift each other. And that will that be the urban be quality that you, you, you can make do with what's ever available on the street. Like they'll lift trash cans and lift cars and lift other people. See, that's what I thought. But that's called strongman. We already have that. And it's its own fun. Do we need more street sports? This is like... The 70-year-olds who are in charge of the associations are just like, street, urban, we need to have that to get the kids. And so they're just coming up with street whatever. Can we throw a balance beam out in the, the th and have street gymnastics? That's parkour. Well, yeah, but, you know, they don't stick the landings all the time, do they? If they don't, they don't have an ankle anymore. <laughs> Which apparently is the sport for me, since I continue to injure myself. <laughs> I want to know what listeners would think a good street sport would be. 
Like, what other versions of street sports are out there? Or or could be out there? What what sports could we turn into a street sport? Let us know. I would love to hear this. We would like to thank our sponsor, Winter Victor Studio. Winter Victor Studio believes that sport and beautiful design go hand in hand, and that of designer's versatility is just as important as an athlete's dexterity. Winter Victor provides distinctive graphic design to clients in sport, from logos to digital communications, Winter Victor brings the same passion to design that our clients bring to the field of play. Add a responsive and versatile designer to your team at wintervictor.com. And I got to say, if you have not visited wintervictor.com, you will have not seen the other lovely designs that they have produced. We just go hang out and look at things. <laughs> That's right. That's what we do. Speaking of looking at things, we can look at photos today. Today we are talking with Mark Edward Harris. Mark is a professional photographer whose work has taken him to over 100 countries. He has a master's degree in pictorial and documentary history from UCLA, and he started his professional photography career doing stills for, and this is really important, this was very exciting to me, doing stills for the Merv Griffin Show. And if you're young and go, what was that? Oh, we'll get into it. Mark's work has appeared in a number of leading publications, which you've probably seen it. He's been in Vanity Fair, Life, Condé Nast Traveler, Time and Newsweek, National Geographic Traveler, Forbes, New York Times, and more. He's won a Clio Award for Advertising Photography, an Aurora Gold Award for Commercial Directing, and an Ace Award for Directing and Producing a Video for Television. He's published a number of photography books and has spent a chunk of the last year photo <laughs> taking pictures of the Olympics because he was in Tokyo and Beijing. We became buddies in Beijing, and uh, he sat down with us in the main media center to talk with us about sports photography. Take a listen. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How long have you been in photography? Well, I, I started my professional career with the Merv Griffin show. No way. Yeah, which dates <gasps> me back years. And so that, that was from 83 to 86. I did do some professional work before then, but that was really the career la launch. Not necessarily in the direction that I really envisioned, but it was a great uh, starting point, that's for sure. So I did two things at the same time. I did the green room, so I took care of the guests, and then when they went out on stage, I would photograph them. And my roommate at the time actually said that, how does it feel to be in fear of being replaced by a Coke machine? <laughs> you know, for, to, for working in a green room, of course, you know. I mean, here, you know, we have the kitchen here, and so you can see all the animation that's being done that gets all the food to you without any contact. So if we had had that, Back in the Merv Griffin show days, I would have been out of a job. Oh I got so many questions on Merv Griffin. I hope you got time. <laughs> I'm here. I've been here since February 1st and staying through March 14th. And so okay. uh, time is something that I do have here. That's for sure. <laughs> Except for when I walk out on a yard. You know, we got the, the yard yeah. where we can pace around. Right, right. And then I return to the big house. <laughs> what What was it like working for Merv Griffin? Merv was, was a great person uh, to work for. And I actually learned a lot because I, besides shooting, uh, I learned years ago to illustrate my own photo essays with words. And so that included interviewing a lot of other photographers and other people. And so I, I really learned a lot from Merv in terms of he really listened to the answers of the people instead of going down a list of, okay, here's the next question, obviously what you guys do so well. He did that. And I think I learned a lot from that process. But as a, as a human being, he was really a great guy. It was a great three and a half 
years, but you know, toward the end, I think the show really became the cure for insomnia. <laughs> and so the show just ended. And, and so for, for me, it was good because it's too good a gig to walk away from, but I really did want to move on. And when the show ended, I took off for Asia for four and a half months to build up a portfolio of what I really wanted to do, which was more you know, documentary travel work, which I've been doing pretty much ever since. So when you do documentary travel work, how do you make money? That's really what I wanted to ask. How do you make money on this? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's, it's something I still really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if we find anybody out there that, that knows the answer, I'd love to hear it. But uh, no, it's a combination of things, and it's changed a lot. Uh, at one time, I did uh, a lot of freelance work for magazines, where let's say the London Sunday Times magazine, it was a good day rate. Uh, and I would go out and shoot, let's say, a story in Hawaii. Somebody would write it, and then I would go illustrate it. So I had, you know, seven days uh, at a pretty good fee per day. And so editorial rates, you know, were, were pretty good, and, and work was steady. And then also I would do commercial work. So I did an around-the-world campaign for Coca-Cola, where I did stuff on their outreach programs and for a huge mural at the World of Coke. For Nobu, I don't know if you guys know Nobu Matsuhisa. Nobu, the, the famous chef. The restaurants, and he worked with Robert De Niro, and I created a whole bunch of hotels. They took my Japanese hot spring series, and he used it for all the suites in a couple of their hotels. And so those, you know, selling those prints really supported some other projects. And the latest one that I've really been working on, besides obviously, you know, the Olympics, Paralympics here, was on orangutans. My latest book is called The People of the Forest, and that's actually what the word orangutan means. It breaks down as people of the forest. And, you know, th those prints are selling, the book's doing very well. Uh, so it's a combination of things. So that's a uh, long answer to a short question, but th that's pretty much, so a combination of, of selling prints, of ed editorial fees per day. For the Olympics and Paralympics here, I'm working with Zuma Press, and so they put out the images, so I get paid for the usage there. But it's always a scramble and it's changed a lot. You know, things have changed over the years. You know, everybody has a, a camera now and, and, and even, you, you know, the iPhone creates enough pixels that they could be reproduced in a double page spread in a magazine. Where it used to be, you know, only really the pros had the equipment for that size image, now everybody can. And so I've seen huge changes in, in the, the income sources through photography. But it, it's still out there, but you just have to, be like a platypus and, and keep evolving and seeing which way to go. And, and, you know, for a while that meant including, you know, video, where all of a sudden, you know, art directors were saying, hey, could you shoot some video content while you're out there? And it, would, it could mean the difference between getting a job and not getting a job. If you didn't know how to produce video content, then they would just find somebody who could and do both at the same time. How did you end up here in Beijing 2022? Well, that, that came out of Tokyo 2020, which actually was in Tokyo 2021. You know, I'm a big Asia-file, and, and so I've done a lot of work in Japan, and so when uh, the Olympics were going to be there, I really looked for an assignment that could get me there. And so one of the things that I got was to do a big feature for Newsweek on the Paralympics for, uh, in Tokyo. And I speak Japanese pretty well, and so that helped me move around. So the Japanese hot spring book that I did brought me back and forth to Japan all the time. Uh, I covered the tsunami, uh, which in Japan they call, you know, 311, and did numerous stories for Vanity Fair, other magazines. And actually there's another one about to come out in Japan because we're coming up on the anniversary. And, and so it made a logical fit that another story out of Japan uh, would be the Olympics. 
and Paralympics, and that also gave me a good excuse to stay there for two months, and, and, which I did. And, and then in between the two, I went back up to Fukushima, where, where the tsunami uh, you know, hit, and, and did the 10-year look at the area's recovery, because I had been there just after, and then uh, two, two years after, five years after, and 10 years after. And, and so that's sort of that platypus kind of thing again, so, so multiple stories you know f from a trip i mean i think that's the only way to survive these days you have to generate a lot of stuff but tokyo led to coming here because of the success of my coverage of, of tokyo one of the agencies uh, that i happened to meet when i was over in tokyo said well let's why don't we work together and i said i would love to and so that brought me back here and i've always loved sports or the combination of, of documenting, you know, the greatest sports competition in the world, which are the Olympics and Paralympics, is really um, amazing. Though, though I learned the hard way that, that Winter Olympics are much harder to cover. So what was the experience at Tokyo? Well, it's, it's funny because we thought we were living in a bubble there, but they don't know what a bubble is. I mean, this is a bubble. I mean, we really are isolated here. There, once you went through a short quarantine period, you could get out, take public transportation, move around. Of course, they didn't have Omicron then. So coming to Beijing uh, was a direct result of, of the Tokyo Olympics and success there. And so working with Zuma Press uh, got me here. And where, uh, as all the other photographers with Zuma Press left after the Olympics, I wanted to stay on. Uh, because the Paralympics, I find, just just like with the Tokyo Paralympics, my biggest stories for Newsweek was on the Paralympians and their backstories. And so I purposely looked for something that was... Because as you guys know, there's always... You have to look for a hook. What's really strong? You just don't want to do an overview all the time. And so I focused on three Paralympians that became Paralympians by acts of violence, but not wounded warriors. In other words, it, it was not from being in the military. Haven Shepard, her parents in Vietnam were not married to each other. They had an affair, had the kid. They were discovered, and so they thought if they could be together forever, if they killed themselves, they tried to blow themselves up along with their daughter. She survived but lost her legs. Her biological parents died. Uh, she was adopted, brought to the U.S. That was one person. Another person was an equestrian who was at the Brussels airport when they had a terrorist attack and she became crippled by the blast. A third person was in a McDonald's parking lot in Iowa and was shot by somebody with PTSD. And so those were the, the, the hook and they were all three U.S. Paralympians. And also I grew up with a father with a pretty severe case of polio, and, but who was a great athlete anyway, even though he had one dangling arm and a curved spine. So the whole concept is not unfamiliar to me at all. And so I think that's a, an extra hook that, that draws me to the competition here that we're you know, witnessing now with the Paralympics started. What's different about shooting sports versus shooting nature? Well, there's a certain amount of predictability. Well, I guess if you're really an expert with, with wildlife, you can sort of predict uh, the movements of animals to a degree. With sports, you know, they're set up at a certain time, depending on what the sport is, if, if let's say downhill or slalom, you, you could pretty much focus on one of the gates and you know that the action's gonna come through it. It really, but I, that said, it really depends on the sport. Something like hockey, you don't never know exactly where they're gonna go. You can anticipate some degree. Shoot, shoot, and also shooting sports really depends. There's a lot of speed involved. All, nature, of course, you do have 
instances, you'll say with a, a leopard running or something like that, but typically that's not the case. The animals are going about their business or whatever, or if you're shooting nature shots, you might sit in one place for hours and wait for something to happen, the perfect light or whatever. Some of the, the most important things to shoot in sports takes place in a fraction of a second and is a one-time thing. And, and it's not good enough to just say, oh, shoot, I just missed that. It's, if, if you missed it, you know, like Sean White's, you know, last run and retiring for the Olympics, you missed it. You can't say to him, hey, would you mind doing that one more time? It just doesn't work that way. And so there is a lot of pressure in that. There's, there's, as a famous National Geographic editor once said, we publish pictures, not excuses. And so you have to get the shot. So there is a lot of pressure to get the shot. But... You know, you try to get to, to a venue early when you can, sort of scope out the angle. I mean, obviously, at the Olympics, Paralympics, there's, there's photo positions that you're given. You can get a, what they call a field of play position, uh, which is typically the desired position, but, but there's very few of those positions, so you have to get to the venue early or sign up online. And then you have to hope that the, whatever's happening, let's say with ice skating, happens when you're there. And then there's the unpredictability of... You know, we had the Russian skater that, you know, supposedly was on an illegal substance. And, you know, she fell a couple of times. Well, I happened to get a shot of her falling right in front of the signage, you know, saying Beijing 2022, which really adds to it. If you just have a picture of somebody on the ice, it could be anywhere. But I'm constantly looking uh, for signage to help give a sense of place. And so a lot of photographers actually tend to shoot tighter than I do. I, I like to shoot a little wider and, and do more of environmental portraits and you know, give you, you know, not just this could be anywhere. But when you look at newspapers and stuff, often the pictures are really tight shots. Magazine work tends to uh, allow for a little more, you know, wide shots. People tend to linger over a magazine photo longer than a newspaper shot. So there's actually different approaches to it. And how does that vary when you know it's published online? Well, online can be a little bit wider, too, because a person can sit and linger with that for a while. You know, both can work. I mean, coverage, you know, it used to be when I first started out, a lot of newspapers were still working in black and white, so often you would have to shoot black and white in color because it was actually film. And then with digital, you know, everything happens so fast, but and now a lot of people are shooting a little bit wider with one camera and tighter with another. And of course, now we have zooms that are good. When I first started, zooms were really not of great quality. And so you would always have to have two camera bodies with different focal lengths on it. And you would shoot two different cameras so you had different coverage, tight and wide. I, I try to stay a little simpler uh, and just really get what I think is the key shot and not do tons and tons and tons of shots to make sure I've got coverage. It's like really, what Cartier-Bresson, you know, is one of the great photographers, said he always went for the decisive moment. And if you're a metrayette, if you're a machine gunner, maybe that's the best way to miss it. In other words, I'd rather really look and see something than now, you know, with the new Z9, the Nikon Z9 that I have, it can shoot 20 frames per second in RAW. But just imagine when you have a two-hour event and you can shoot 20 frames per second and there's a lot of stuff going on that's an insane amount of film and and i was guilty of that uh, uh, depressing the shutter too much for the olympics i'm trying to adjust that uh, approach now with the paralympics when you press the shutter too much 
Yeah. Like, what kind of results do you get? Or is it on the back end when you have to go through and kind of process things and you see the percentage that's usable versus not usable? The percentage goes way down. And it does make sense. Let's say now that there's like 3D tracking on, on a camera, you purposely start the action uh, before, let's say, that decisive moment when you're going around the gate. And so let's say you start three seconds before, you get three seconds afterwards. So that's, let's say, six, six seconds altogether. That's 120 frames. And you're only going for that one shot. So, so it doesn't mean that only one out of 120 frames is good or usable, but maybe there's 10 frames in there, so one out of 12 might be good. But I also felt that I was shooting a lot of bad stuff from the first time around, that I was, I was depressing it too much and not really looking enough. And so be adjusting to that. Because when I'm out in nature, out in the world, shooting my documentary stuff, I mean, I'm still from the film days, like when I went to North Korea, I've been there 10 times to do two books. Well, I actually switched to, to digital purposely to do that series, because if I walked into North Korea, you know, with 100 rolls of film, I would stand out too much. And so that was my first really foray into the uh, digital world. But I shot in a film style, meaning, you know, you have a roll of 36, you really were careful with that roll of 36. And so that's traditionally how I shoot. Uh, sports just tends to be the exception to that approach. Does having a knowledge of the sport or the event help you in, in getting that picture? Oh, 100%. I mean, case in point, just like occasionally I shoot the Dodgers when I'm, I'm back uh, in L.A. And so I, I used to, you know, in high school in American Legion, I pitched and, and, and so I was a pitcher. And so to know the form, so you know that, okay, if he's a left-handed pitcher, you get over to the left side so his arm doesn't block as he's coming across. This morning I was photographing para hockey and had a good sense of that. I knew where the player was coming, where uh, he was going to shoot. You know, you can't be an expert on every sport. I didn't know anything about curling at all. And I've come to actually like it and understand it a lot more since, you know, I've been here and actually see it in person. I really had no idea how tough it is and the way they just sort of slide along. I mean, it's really a surprise. And I didn't really understand the whole thing about how they use a, a broom to maneuver the, the stone. And so there was a bit of a learning curve there to understand. I thought, okay, wait a second, I gotta pull a little more depth of field in order to get the person, I mean, do you say sweeping? Mm -hmm. the, uh, yeah. It, it, that is the word Yeah, that it? is the word. Wow. So, 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 you know, to pull, to get that person in focus and then also the person, uh, what, what do you do, push the stone? Was there a word? Oh, uh, you throw it. You throw it. Yeah. I wow. mean, you do, it's a push. You don't lift the stone no, off. No, 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 but, but that's yeah, actually yeah, they, called you throwing. You throw the rock, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, some shots I got where I just really focused on the person throwing the stone. But I thought, well, that's, there were a few shots that I, I had to I throw out because I didn't get, I thought, okay, this would have been better if I got the person uh, brushing in front and the person throwing the stone both sharp. We're often in sports, you're going for very minimum depth of field to, well, actually, in a lot of photography, especially people-oriented, you're often going for shallow depth of field to bring the viewer into the person and the emotion. But there's certain times, and I, I think in uh, curling, it's one of them where it's nice to uh, have, not necessarily shoot a wider shot, but have more depth of field uh, so you see the actions of both people. Right, yeah. and, and with such a long sheet of ice. Exactly. That, well, th th then you can have a long lens for the, uh, and compress it so you get that sense. of, And also, of course, 
you know, the Olympics, you know, you have to shoot from a pretty good distance. So typically you'll shoot with a lot of longer lenses. But, but yeah, then the decision is, well, what depth of field do you want to have to achieve the desired results? And, and so I think that does vary from sport to sport. How much does the emotion of an event affect you? So, for example, you were at the figure skating. Mm-hmm. Jill was there. I watched that on TV. Emotion seemed very, very high. So do you feel like as a photographer it's better to get that feeling from an event or do you feel like you need to be more objective to get the shots that you want? I, I think, I mean, we're still, uh, it's interesting because there have been photographers that have talked about, you know, covering, you know, war. There was Philip Jones Griffiths who did uh, a book called Vietnam Inc. One of my best friends, Nick Oot, who did the picture of the little girl hit by napalm in Vietnam. Uh, both have talked about, especially Philip Jones Griffith, if you get too sucked into the emotion of it, as he said, you can almost just, you know, curl up into a ball and start crying. I mean, the horrible things that he saw that happened in Vietnam. And so he sort of stepped back and had a very doctorish approach to shooting. Um, I, nothing really rises to that uh, emotional level in terms of, of the, the anguish or horrors, uh, of course, in, in sports. And so I, I think it's fairly easy to sort of uh, allow yourself to get you know, excited, you know, and sort of inside root for somebody. You know, I did want to see Sean White, you know, take home uh, a medal. Of course, I can't be yelling out, hey, you know, come on, kid, go for it. I, I really did feel very bad for, the, for the, the 15-year-old Russian athlete who fell twice, and, and you almost felt sick to your stomach. To, once she fell very early on in the routine, you could see the, the life sort of went out of her, and she just wanted to get through that routine. And, and um, Jill, since you were there, you, you saw it. You know, she just yeah. sort of, in disgust, just sort of waved her hand at the end. I, I really felt bad for her. And there was a, um, there was a second athlete. Oh, oh there was a, the, the, the girl that skated for the Chinese team, but learned it in the U.S. Remember mm-hmm. this whole bunch yeah. of controversy? Yeah. And she fell as well. And I actually said in, in one of the features that I put out, you know, center stage could be the loneliest place on earth. And, and one of the photographs I shot, I think, really conveyed that, how she just had to pick herself back out, back up on the ice. And there was really a hush, you know, in the, in the Capitol Stadium. It doesn't matter who you were rooting for or whatever, everybody felt it and felt bad. That was more, I think everybody had that human response. You know, these people are on the world stage. And just imagine, and I saw this, of course, in, in Tokyo as well with the gymnastics, you know, how people are able to focus you know, and like stay on a beam and flip over and jump and, and do things. And with just everything they're doing is being scrutinized. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely feel uh, for them, for sure. But, but I have to be careful not to get too wrapped up because I really have to focus, you know, focus on, okay, where do I need to get this shot? What angle do I need? Is something merging with their head? Because I'm, I'm a big, should I say, focuser on, on the design of a shot, really using my sensor as a canvas and trying to make sure that, that things as best as I can, things line up where, where there's not, you know, the, the words on the boards, you know, merging with their heads. So, so if you see a, a number of my shots, uh, like let's say for skating, between Beijing and 2022 is where I would like the skater to be. So I'll purposely look for a seat to try to get that angle. And it's amazing how, even though everybody's doing different routines, they seem to end up 
and use the ice in the same way in ice skating. Uh, did you notice that at, at all? Yeah, they too tend to, I think part of the score is how well they use the ice. Yeah. So there do tend to be patterns that skaters take. But, but did you notice they tended to, to sort of go sort of in a counter clockwise? Oh yeah, now but, that you say that, yes. Yeah, and, and so I started to notice that after a, a while. And, but I also sort of took the lead from a lot of like amazing sports photographers that that's all they do. And so it's like, why are they all sitting right there? <laughs> you know, but so, yeah, so, so, you know, positioning. So, so what you talked about earlier, knowledge of sport. Yeah, if you know, it's like, hey, this is the direction they're going. So they're going to sort of play to this. Obviously, they're going to play to the judges. And so, so one approach is to sort of shoot as near the judge's line of sight as you can shooting out because you know that's a big focus. But then if you go the exact opposite direction, then you get you know, them performing for the judges and you get the judges in a shot, which is really interesting too. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so much goes on before they ever take the ice or, or head down the slopes, you know, and so much of what you decide to do will dictate everything else from there. And then it's just the mechanics of making sure you're in, in focus and, and all the technical things that go into making a shot work. Do you stake out one spot during an event or do you like to move around where you can? It's tough. I might work a, a situation for a while and say, you know what, uh, this just isn't working. You know, maybe I should try another vantage point or I should, maybe it, it's best if I just, you know, stay here. Like this is really working because you might get the, the bronze medalist from a great position and think, okay, I, I've worked this place enough. Now I'm going to try somewhere else. But then it's really the gold medalist that's going to be the shot that's you really want or keep and so you might as well stay in that same position or just like the you know the opening and closing ceremonies if you're in position a and literally it is position a you have a high vantage point and you get great overview shots but the one thing that's really missing is you really don't get to see the fireworks so much and so some photographers do set up a second remote camera down in position b with a super wide angle like was it like eight to thirteen millimeter lens shooting up and then you can get the fireworks my approach is going to be shoot from higher up for the opening ceremony and then low for the closing ceremony you know and there is because of what's going on in the ukraine now you know a strange pale over stuff and so the words we saw at the closing ceremony remember that oh right yeah. one world one family you got it <laughs> yeah really it's going to feel very strange during the Paralympics because you can't put an asterisk next to it. And so actually that's worked its way into my coverage now for the Paralympics to, to get some of the story about what's going on. And you both were at the press conferences here about that. I don't think anybody expected or wanted this to uh, invade, and that's a bad choice of words, but, you know, the Paralympics. But they, they have, and that's just the reality of it. So what has been the experience so far here in Beijing. We've talked about the cold. Yeah. You've had a little tough time with the cold. I did, and, and the thing is, I, there really is such a thing as, you know, when you live in a place uh, th that you get thinner blood. And so, you know, even though I, you know, I work in Japan and, you know, I hiked in you know, the Everest trek and all that bit, I really do have thinner blood. And so it was minus 16 Celsius, which I think is about three degrees. And I was out for hours on the giant slalom and ended up with six fingers with frostbite. And that's what, uh, it, it's starting to peel away now, uh, the, all the dead skin. And so I'm, I, 
I feel like within a few more days, I'll be back up in the mountains shooting, but it's going to be a lot warmer. Being in the bubble has been tough. I have great friends that live in Beijing, and so originally I was really looking to hanging out with them, especially between the Olympics and Paralympics. But instead I find myself walking the yard, which is the park area allowed for us to to do our uh, walks. You know, we go out into the exercise yard for one hour a day, then we have to return to the big house, which is the uh, MMC. Uh, so, it's, so it's definitely different here. But, you know, there's a, there's a great group of people here, and, and we're able to go to other hotels for, for the restaurants there, you know. And so it's, I, I feel, and this is just like in Tokyo as well, you know, since I spent so much time in Japan, I know Japan so well. But it, it's really unfortunate that the people that were in Japan could not experience Japan more. You know, instead we were in a press room and they were serving peanut butter and, and jelly sandwiches, if you guys remember that. Here, you know, there's so much in China that's amazing, but, but they don't get to, you know, get out and see it. I mean, but for those of us who travel a lot, we're fortunate that we do get to, you know, see it. So it's not as devastating for me because I know I'll be back here. I was here two years ago. I'll be here next year, I'm sure, when things open up again. And so, yeah, it definitely has an effect. But, we're, you know, we're still here for the sports. And I think it's amazing how they've pulled it off. And just like, once again, with Tokyo, I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, you have, you're able to bring the world together to do sports. That's a, a pretty incredible thing. And so, actually, part of the thing I'm doing is combining my work for, from Tokyo and Beijing under uh, a heading, The Miracle Games. And so I do envision the possibility of a book out of this, with the hook being that they both took place during a pandemic. Do you have a favorite picture from Tokyo? Well, the f- favorite Paralympic one would be Haven Shepherd jumping into the pool, and it really describes everything there because it's you know she's in a bathing suit and she doesn't have her lower legs, and I think that's a very powerful shot because you see the athleticism there. Uh, and as I said, because having a dad with polio, or having had a dad with polio, I think I have an extra connection there. So that's a strong shot. The opening ceremony, Tokyo, with the fireworks, is a strong shot. But there's, there's probably about a dozen, I would say, that I really feel good about. In terms of from Beijing, you know, sometimes it's hard to get a perspective from within something. And so maybe I need a little more time to really, you know, know which one will rise, you know, above the others. What kind of gear do you have? Actually, this is the first time I'm shooting with mirrorless cameras, a serious assignment, and so this is with a Nikon Z9. And I've got a, what they call the holy trinity of lenses, so the, the 14 to 24, 24 to 70, 70 to 200. And then, of course, for sports, you need longer lenses. And so NPS, the Nikon Professional Services, loans us lenses. So even though back home we might have really long glass, at events, they typically set something up so you can borrow for a day or two a long lens. And so, you know, often the 400 is really a go-to one for sports here. So I'm the money person out of all of us. And during the Olympics, every time I ride the bus and there's a bunch of photographers on, I always think that there's probably at minimum $50,000 worth of equipment on the bus. Oh, oh, how many photographers? Yeah, well, would you say? just a few. But like, uh, okay, well, how depends, much? How much does your gear, your gear stuff, run? I have a feeling you're gonna jump me after this. <laughs> <interview>. <laughs> no, I promise. I won't. I don't have enough room in my suitcase. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have a lot of audio gear to pack. Oh, that's actually. true. Actually, you have really good stuff too. Coming out of it, I love your setup too. Um, well, 
It's expensive. It's, it's expensive because just the camera body alone is almost $6,000. And so uh, they have the lens, and this is the lens that, that I'm going to borrow. Uh, a 400 millimeter 2.8 uh, costs $13,000. That's just for one lens, but it's a 2.8, but that's one that most people just borrow or rent. Uh, they don't typically... Uh, well, actually, sports photographers might have that companies like Getty Images oh. you know would have that I, I don't know how many individuals somebody like Franz Lanting who's a great nature photographer I'm sure has that as part of his in his arsenal I'd say so yeah I, I, I've got a pretty healthy um, amount of equipment here so I, I, I have I carry a, a think tank roller bag and, and which is sort of counter Intuitive, you think with all the snow and ice, you really need a, a bag that's just a backpack bag and no wheels. But in reality, if you look at all the photographers here, almost all of them have rolling bags and many of them convert into backpacks. And so that's what I have. But then I have a pure backpack, a think tank backpack as well. And so if I go up into the mountains for some coverage, have that. And then they have storage lockers at each place. But speaking of economics, so if you looked at everybody's storage locker, there's probably about at least, at least... I would think $15,000 per person mm -hmm. that makes of sense. equipment, I would say. And, and do, we, do we need that stuff would we, we, for, for a, a reproduction in a newspaper? I mean, these prints could go super huge, but it's really more about uh, the speed of focus. That's really what you're paying for with these higher-end cameras, not just you know, the sensor that, produces, you know, that can produce a really big image, but the speed of focus because things are happening so fast. And so that's where these fast lenses, like that 400-2.8 or the Nikon Z9 with super-fast 3D tracking, uh, because if you have, let's say, speed skating, for example, and somebody's coming around an oval and they're coming right at you, if you don't have the, the state-of-the-art equipment, the focus will drag slightly behind, slightly behind, and then you'll, you'll miss the shot. How much does all of that weigh? You know, that's an excellent question, and, and people ask me that, and I always say, I, I've got to weigh it to see, and I never do. I don't know if it's like 30 pounds or something. Okay. Does it feel heavy to you, or no? You're well, that's the great thing about, like, the Think Tank backpack. Mm -hmm. It's made with back support, because I do have back issues that I have to be uh, careful about, and so I choose... Uh, the bags carefully because you, you don't want to be especially you know it, it, the winter really is much tougher not only because i got frostbite you know from the, the giant slalom but you have to get crampons in order to get to a photo position up the hill and so that's why i have tape if you notice on both of my i have my snow pants on today because we're going to be sitting outside but because my the big crampons and once again this is what i get for all these years living in california I was walking up and I caught my pants with my crampons and I ripped my pants, fell down face first into the snow. Uh, and I was just laying there thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> my fingers are frozen. I've ripped my pants. I'm just laying here. And then you think, well, I'm, you know, I'm at the Olympics. This is pretty amazing. Well, was I really thinking that at minus 16? <laughs> I might have been using some different words. I'm not sure. But... Um, at that instant. But I mean, I think once you defrost, you, you realize like how amazing it, it is. I had a question about your hands. Yeah. And how the frostbite affected your ability to work. Here's the thing, you know, hand warmers are a great invention. But you, what you really need are finger warmers. Hands are pretty easy to keep warm, right? But, but finger warmers are, are, are the key. And when I really had the, 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 the really serious frostbite, I, I actually 
started using my middle finger to depress the shutter. So I, I think when other photographers would, would come up and say, hey, could I sort of share this position with you? And then they w I would use my middle finger to take a picture. It's like, well, gee, all you have to say is no. <laughs> so, but, but no, I really did use my middle finger. I, had a I could not use my index finger uh, to shoot. It was tough. And also now, because everything is so digitized, and, and I'm not talking about using the, you know, the touchscreen stuff. I, I disable that. I don't like using the touchscreen anyway. But I really did struggle with, uh, with in the freezing cold to try to work with some of the settings now. We're in the old mechanical days. What are you looking forward to for Paralympics? Well, definitely I want to focus more on, on slalom and downhill ski stuff. Looking back at, at the Olympics, I think, and partially maybe because I had injured my fingers, I spent a lot more time photographing the indoor sports. I mean, of course, figure skating, singles, couples, and all that, just so amazing anyway. But I did, in, in part, spend more time indoors because of, of, of the fingers. So now I want to spend more time out because it is going to be warmer up there. And I, I think a lot of the excitement of uh, the Olympics and Paralympics are, are the downhill ski races and so that's what I'm really looking forward to getting out and trying to capture and of course uh, the added amazement of, of seeing people that might only have you know one leg or, or using a special apparatus to get down the mountain but at these incredible speeds just adds to the excitement and, and power of the potential you know image so I, I would say that's uh, top of my my list right now for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It has been great talking with you. And thank you, Jill. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Allison. Right. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much, Mark. You can learn more about Mark at markedwardharris.com and follow him on Instagram at markedwardharrisphoto. We will have links to both of those in the show notes. He's got a, a bunch of books he's published that are very cool looking. He's done some projects in North Korea. It's absolutely fascinating, the work that he's done in North Korea, I think. And he was working with Merv Griffin. <laughs> That's right. He was fun. I kept fun after the interview. I mean, we had seen each other several times and talked a lot. And then I like ran into him almost every day. <laughs> oh, Mark and I snuck into first class on the, the bullet train. That was exciting. Because he figured out that once you get on the train, because there was nobody riding it, basically, they didn't really care where you sat. So he's like, let's go out to first class. Oh, those seats were nice. I will say that. Got a lot of work done that day. So. Troublemaker. <laughs> That's a nice sound to hear again. That is the sound that means it's time for our history moment. And all throughout 2022, we are focusing on Albertville 1992, which is the Winter Olympics in France. Today is your turn for a story. So what do you got for me? Okay, so we're at the opening ceremonies. We talked so much about the beautiful costumes we saw in Beijing of the women who escorted the teams in of the Parade of Nations. I was watching the opening ceremonies and this is a winner. They were human snow globes in Albertville. <laughs> and we, we've got to put a picture up and I'll put some video of this up in motion. But it is a full-blown plastic ball. The woman stands in the center and that snow moves around. Oh, okay. So it was designed by Philippe Guillotel. 
He has since gone on to design things for movies and Broadway. He also did the costumes for the band New Order for a video called True Faith. And if you see them, if you go back and watch it, you'll say, oh, I, I remember this. So the coolest thing about this costume is that it looks like there is no way these women can walk. But this was so brilliantly designed. The bubble of the snow globe stops above the knees. And that whole black piece at the bottom looks like it's stiff. It isn't. It moves. So when you watch these women walk, they have a perfectly normal stride. Interesting, because for a second, I thought they were on wheels. And I'm still hopeful that they are wearing clothes underneath the snow. Okay, so underneath the snow, they have a skin-colored bodysuit because, here's the best part, the plastic bowl does not touch them. The snow doesn't touch their skin. There is an inner tube that they stand in, and then their arms are in the snow globe, and they swish their arms around. And that makes the snow fly within the cylinder. Oh, my goodness. So in motion, this is gorgeous. In a still photo a photograph, it looks ridiculous. It does. <laughs> it's also ridiculous. And then the bottom black portion looks like it's very stiff, but it wasn't. It was a tube that actually made it very easy to walk. So you, when you look at the still photograph, then go back and look at the thing in motion. But the coolest part is different women did different arm movements. So different countries had different snow effects. So of course, the woman who had the France snow globe, she was going crazy. Swaziland, she just like was flicking her hand and the snow barely moved. So they were definitely trained on how to properly move the snow within their snow globe. And it was a great effect. It is so early 90s. It is fantastic. And I bet these are incredibly lightweight as well. Fair, I won't take your word. I'm going to go back and look at this because, yes, when I saw this in a still photo, I went, oh, boy, it looks like it should be in like that Mia Jovovich Fifth Element movie. Especially the bottom part, because that is very, like you said, very early 90s with these rings of fabric that are kind of rubbery looking as well. But they latex. moved. I think they were latex. So the key was the ball hit you above the knee so you could do a normal stride. And, it, and there are uh, supports. So I bet this thing was even lighter than those dresses that we saw in Beijing, because the dresses in Beijing had laid up elements. They had beading. Those were probably incredibly heavy dresses. This is just, you know, plastic and latex and flip your arms around and make a snow globe. Far out. But it is very Olympic. I will say that it does make a definite statement. Welcome to Shukvastan. Yes, it is time to journey over to the country of Shukvastan, where our members of Team Keep the Flame Alive reside. Those are people who have been on the show in the past, and they now represent Team Keep the Flame Alive and our country of Shukvastan. So the U.S. Biathlon had its national championships, and biathlete Claire Egan won the sprint and pursuit competitions, which is a very nice way to end your biathlon career. She and her teammate Susan Dunkley were on the U.S. Biathlon podcast Heartbeat with host Shukvastani, Tom Kelly. When Shukvastani's collide. I love it. 
and gold medal winning speed skater Erin Jackson was honored to be named as the Olympic Female Athlete of the Year at Utah's State of Sport Awards. John Neighbor has been approved to serve an additional four-year term on the USOPC Board of Directors, so he is very excited about continuing his work with them. You're getting to play that twice in one show. That is not a good sound to play twice in one show. No. So we have a definitive. Did we, we talked about this before with the Team GB, the men's 4x100 relay team for athletics. One of the members got hit with a doping violation. They have officially been ordered to give back the medals and pins and certificates and everything they got as part of winning that award. So the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled that Chindu Yuja took a banned substance in a statement released through United Kingdom Athletics. They accepted the decision. He said he never knowingly took any banned substance, blaming his positive test results on a, quote, contaminated supplement. So it's uh, sad that the whole team has to now give up their awards It's interesting because Yuja also raced in the men's 100 meters, but he didn't get out of the heats. So whatever, it's it's always curious to know what what happens here. But uh, sad day for Team GB. That means that Canada moves up to silver and China moves into the bronze. Speaking of China... There's an article from the Global Times, a Chinese publication, uh, saying that the Ice Cube has been opened to the public and 2,000 Beijingers visited it on the first day. It's very cool. It was basically kind of an open house. Come and see what the curling venue was like. They said they kept the authentic scenes of the Winter Olympics, including the competition area, media stands, mixing area, athletes' locker room, and podium, providing a full scene experience of the Winter Olympics atmosphere. I wonder if they had a little paper cutout of me getting mobbed by our fans. <laughs> I wonder if they were still there. Did they bring them back? <laughs> I was just like, hello. I miss-. When I read this, I really missed all the volunteers. Very much. And that was one of the venues with Snickers bars. So I hope everybody who came got a Snickers bar. (laughs) But it looked like a fun event. I also think that it was preserved because they're just tired. They're still they're still taking down other venues and they're just like, oh, you get a day off. How take a week? You you deserve it. But very exciting. The they're going to keep it as a dual venue, it sounds like. So they'll transform it to a swimming pool for summer and then back to the ice cube for winter. Interesting. Be interesting to see how long, because that's an expensive conversion, how they're, how long they're going to keep that up. Well, okay. Let's do the math. It's uh, not 31,000 bucks. 30,000. So it, it, it would take, they, they said they've, they've gotten that conversion down. A little bit because they said that the quote is at present our technology of water ice conversion is very mature and they estimate it takes like thirty thousand dollars u.s to transform the pool into the cube i bet as they learn how to do that it gets more and more efficient but that's still sixty thousand dollars a year right but you got to turn it back depends on how much how many people were using the pool in the winter I mean, it's an indoor pool, and it looks like a still looks like a 
lovely, lovely facility. So I wonder how many people decided to go swimming in the winter. Would they do better by having more curling? Hope those 2,000 people found the bathrooms easier than I did. (laughs) In the future, the water ice conversion of the main pitch is expected to take place once a year. Maybe it's cheaper to drain it. We'll keep an eye on it. And we have a little bit of follow-up from the International Paralympic Committee. When Beijing 2022 was on, the athletes got to vote for different athletes' council seats. There had been a tie between Rico Roman and Mitchell Gorley for the third seat. And so the tie has now been broken. There has been another election. And the Australian Mitchell Gorley, who is a skier, will be the third member of the Athletes' Council. So very excited to see what the IPC Athletes' Council does in the future. And I think that's going to do it. I mean, we've just come off of vacation week, so there's we're still catching up on news. And jelly beans. Oh, that's right. Was the Easter Bunny good to you? Easter Bunny was very good to me. That's good. Brought me injuries. <laughs> All right. Well, next year, the Easter Bunny will bring you a nice little volunteer to help you. <laughs> And if you have suggestions for getting me healed up, we'd love to hear from you and get in touch with us. You can email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have the return of one of our Shuklastani authors. David Davis is going to be back on the show. He's got a book that's been out for a while called A Waterman about Duke Kahanamoko, the swimmer and surfing legend. But it's being turned into a documentary that will be on PBS. So we're going to have David on to chat about the book and the movie project. So we will look forward to that conversation next week. Thank you so much for listening, and until then, keep the flame alive.